0: This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by Me Undies. It's National Underwear Month. Celebrate with Me Undies, the ultimate feel-good underwear for men and women. Get 20% off your first pair at MeUndies.com slash That's MeUndies.com slash Wow. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. She's a librarian, but no ordinary librarian. She's the Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, the first Black person and the first woman to ever hold the position. And she's just plain cool. Now, we did something different this time. There is a Facebook video of the entire interview. What you're listening to right now has been edited for clarity. But the best part, the best part comes at the end when Dr. Hayden shows us some really great stuff. Like, you ever wonder what was in President Lincoln's pockets the day he died? where you're going to find out right now. Dr. Hayden, thank you very much for, for for doing this, for having us here.
1: I think I told you before when we were at a wonderful museum setting that the Library of Congress is one of the best-kept secrets, but we don't want to be a secret.
0: Right, and I, and we're going to get to the part that's not a secret in a minute, but the reason why I wanted to come here and talk to you and get a look around this place is that it's palpable even just right now that you love your (laughs) job and not just being librarian of Congress but being a librarian how did that happen how did you get this love of uh, books and libraries and research and history
1: I'm the product of two classically trained musicians and uh, my earliest memories are and being in a practice room, my dad on the violin, my mom at the piano, and them putting me under the piano with toys and then books. And as I was listening to music, I was associating that with text. And by the time I was 12, though, um, it was clear that I didn't have the talent that they had.
0: The musical talent.
1: Not a bit, but we all agreed that where they would look at notes and be able to hear music i could look at text and hear words and later i found out there's a profession that allows you to combine your love of reading and books with helping other people
0: so then how do you become a librarian and certainly how do you rise up to the ranks to being what the the most important librarian in the world
1: what has happened to me is I, I call myself an accidental librarian. I didn't know you could go and get a master's degree in library science. I didn't know about the profession. I would actually go into a library, a central library, between job interviews after I graduated from uh, undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I was there, and one of my fellow graduate colleagues said, hey, are you for those library jobs? They're hiring anybody.
0: With any no, degree. No, no, no. Anybody. <laughs> Anybody
1: with a degree. Well, libraries still do that. They hire people with undergraduate degrees. Mm-hmm. But then I was assigned to a young lady that was doing wonderful things in a storefront library and she was going to graduate library school. And that's when I said, oh, wow. There is a path that can combine some of the things that I really love.
0: So when I was growing up, libraries were places where you were you were. So Quiet, quiet. That's not the case anymore, is it?
1: In fact, now libraries are creating quiet spaces and quiet rooms. It's similar like a
0: quiet car and a train? In a
1: train, because there's so, there's so much activity. You have coffee shops and you have all types of things going on. There's some libraries that have stores, like a museum shop. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of activity going on, so people are saying... I, w- I need a place where I can study and just be quiet for a minute. And so libraries are developing quiet spaces now. Well,
0: I mean, it must be a challenge now in this digital age when, like, for me, I can do all the research I need right from my desk. I can type into Google or whatever and get all the information I I, I want. But, okay, so you're giving, you're giving, giving me that you look. I'm
1: giving you a look because... A lot of the things that you are retrieving online have been put online by libraries like the Library of Congress. So we are working together with technology companies and search engines to make sure that these collections are available online. The Library of Congress just put the papers of Sigmund Freud online and Rosa Parks, her collection, and three presidents. We have the papers of 23 presidents from George Washington all the way to Coolidge. And so we just put up uh, Milton, uh, Millmore, Freemore. Okay, you see, I didn't Miller, get that Phil- Millard right. Fillmore? We want him to be better known. <laughs> 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 I have to say, he's not doing, but we're working on Woodrow Wilson mm-hmm. and Teddy Roosevelt. And we, so you'll have all of that. We, so do you have an app? Not yet. And we will be announcing it very shortly. We do have an app already for our services for the blind and physically handicapped. We have a national service, and they can download books and do things through the app. And also for our Veterans History Project. And that one we're really excited about because veterans can record their own oral histories and submit them for posterity, and for sharing. Mm -hmm. So that project is really going on. We have about 150,000 oral histories already.
0: So there's a lot of talk about so-called alternative facts and fake news and people not trusting information that they see and information that they read. I would just love your perspective on the impact of all of that As a librarian, because you deal in books and facts and knowledge and where we are as a country seems to be anti that.
1: I must tell you, and when I mentioned my library colleagues or just, yay, Library of Congress, um, another thing that we're very energized about is the fact that people are thinking and talking about something that's a bedrock of our profession, information literacy. How do you know that the sources are authoritative, sources that you can trust, especially about health information? So that's a major part of librarianship is making sure that the information is credible, especially information about facts. And so we are talking about information literacy even more, that just like you have internet safety, And you're teaching young people about being safe on the Internet. We're also really involved with letting young people know about sources online as well.
0: So we're here at the Library of Congress, surrounded by everything, it seems. Talk about some of the collections that are here that people might not know are here
1: And I'm smiling because you have 164 million items, collections that range from the largest gathering of comic books in the world to Jackie Robinson's papers and the correspondence with Branch Rickey, who was that famous uh, scout, and his scouting papers that assess... Hank Aaron, where he says, I think he has a future. (laughs) Ernie Banks, Sandy Kovacs, to actual draft of the Declaration of Independence in Thomas Jefferson's hand with annotations by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. And you can see where they crossed out and took out sections, especially the section on slavery, because they knew that that would be pretty controversial and they might not get that declaration passed.
0: You're the first woman Librarian of Congress. You're also the first African-American Librarian of Congress. Do you feel the weight of history on your shoulders when you walk into this building? Actually, there are three
1: buildings. When you walk into the buildings of the Library of Congress? I mentioned my library colleagues, and there is much uh, joy in Mudville (laughs) uh, in the library world because of the fact that I'm a female in a female-dominated profession where at least 85 to 90% of the workforce is female, and the management of libraries might not reflect that fact, And the part about being an African-American is very humbling because I'm from a race that had been forbidden to learn how to read. And I looked up a lot of those laws when I was preparing my swearing-in comments, and they were pretty severe. I knew that, but to just see them in print, amputation, finger by finger, each time that you were caught, trying to learn to read, uh, the number of lashes that you'll get. And so to be an African-American who is responsible for the world's largest library was the part that made me realize that this was a journey that I was a part of and proud to be part of. How
0: important is it to you to be a symbol for not just a race of people— our people, but for little kids who might look at you and say, "You know, I never thought that I could be that I could be the librarian of Congress or be a librarian," and yet here, here's this fabulous lady who's the who's got this fantastic
1: job. And it's the fantastic job that is the most exciting in terms of young people because when I talk about the cool things that the Library of Congress has, from the baseball cards to all of these wonderful photographs and prints and all of these treasures, their eyes light up and they are interested in history. And it's like you, you mean being a librarian can be fun and be cool. <laughs> and you don't. And the greatest compliment is always you don't look like a librarian. <laughs> and I know what they mean. And so you have young people also who are very interested in technology. And when you talk about uh, making your website more user-friendly or a library app and things like that, and how can you use technology to connect people to resources, that also gets young people involved. Mm -hmm. And then there's the aspect of people of different backgrounds. So why shouldn't I think of you as a museum director? Actually, that would be somewhat accurate because the Library of Congress has aspects of a public library, a college library, a museum because of the actual artifacts, the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. That's museum quality item that you would see on display. And so I have, and I had experience working at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And so I've had the museum experience. I've had library experience. I've taught library science. So this is really a combination of all of those worlds.
0: Dr. Carla Hayden, 14th Librarian of Congress. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by Me Undies. You want to look good in your underwear and be comfortable, right? But the perfect balance is hard to find. Don't sacrifice style or comfort. Check out Me Undies right now. It's National Underwear Month, and you can try Me Undies risk-free. Me Undies are made from Linsing micro micromodal, a fabric three times softer than cotton, cut for comfort and style. That's what makes them the world's most comfortable underwear. Try them today. There's no risk. If you don't love your Undies, they're free. Now through August 31st, get 20% off your first pair, plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash capeup. That's MeUndies.com slash capeup. After our interview, Dr. Hayden brought us to a conference room near her office where some really cool items from the Library of Congress were laid out. Now, we have a video of this on Facebook, so go check that out. But first, Dr. Hayden told us how a particularly interesting item was found in
1: 1975. The legend goes that the new Librarian of Congress uh, moved into the office and there was a door that had a vault it's like a false door.
0: What, what year are we talking about? You're here?
1: talking about 1953 or so, 50s. right? And the, the librarian goes in. There's this false door. There's a like a bank vault there, but nobody knows the combination. Uh, legend continues that the gentleman who was, let's say, incarcerated for being very expert at opening these types of things (laughs) was given a, a small pardon to come and help open the vault. And he did. And inside there was just one item, and it was this one black box. And in the box, when they opened it, was a note saying that through a gift from... Abraham Lincoln's granddaughter. These were the contents of his pocket the night he was assassinated. I mean, come on. These are the it's, things that were in his pocket, and, and it's it's remarkable because there's something very humanizing about seeing the button that had been put in his pocket. Think about losing a button, and what's the first thing you do? You put, put it, it in my your pocket. pocket. I've got he one had in a my button right now. He had an a, A Confederate note uh, bill. He had visited the South a couple of weeks before the assassination and probably kept that bill, $5 bill, as a kind of memento or just something to think about.
0: And isn't that why, I mean, he's got a Confederate $5 bill and today he's on our $5 bill.
1: Right, right. A pocket knife, um, a wallet that's very nice looking when you think oh, about yeah. it for notes and currency and that two currency pairs. was
0: really small back then.
1: Yes, it was. <laughs> what and is... folded it up, but you could see um, two pairs of spectacles, glasses. One that's a little more traditional, and then one that folds up into a small case. And but you have one of those. Sandwiches. I have you've got, one. You've got your little I have foldy it. It's full. very similar. So the synergies are just something. But that was that. Type of case, and then a wonderful lens cleanser.
0: Uh, yeah, for your thing. for your right, eyeglasses. Eye which I wish I wish they, they made, made these now because now. I would have one in my pocket too. And then,
1: of course, a handkerchief with a Lincoln
0: his monogram. These a. were a. Lincoln. the
1: things, and then also though, clippings that talked about his presidency, about six articles. And a few of them were complimentary, and a few of them weren't. And he had those folded up and was carrying them in his in, pocket.
0: In his pocket. Or, or as TJ, our, our producer, said, it's sort of like you having your phone and having your bookmarks right. open. And seeing all the kind of nasty things people <laughs> say and about And a few you good ones, too. O- online. But to
1: think that these things were in his pocket that night in the Library of Congress. Uh, had those.
0: I mean, this is this is incredible. This is the closest any of us will ever come to Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. In
1: that sense. And I have to tell you, as the 14th Librarian of Congress, I looked through every nook and cranny of the new office that I got in, hoping to discover <laughs> that's, that's something. Right.
0: Then Dr. Hayden yielded her time to Senior Reference Librarian Eric Fraser, and the first thing he showed us was Thomas Jefferson's Quran.
2: This is a special Quran. This came to us through the Thomas Jefferson sale in 1815, and um, this Quran was in his collection, in his religion collection, down at Monticello. Um, after the library burned in 1815, this is uh, this is part of that sale that. that Essentially, reconstituted the Library of Congress.
0: Right, that's something I didn't know before. That the Library of Congress had been, has been burned down twice. Yes, the first time completely burned down, and President and, and Thomas Jefferson sold his entire collection, sold his entire collection to the Library of Congress, and then it was half of it was burned down, or I should say it was burned, but half the collection was. Incinerated yes, at that
2: point. That's correct. In 1850, there was another fire. And in fact, um, maybe about half of the collection of the Library of Congress, three quarters of the collection of Thomas Jefferson's initial uh, 1815 sale was actually burned in that fire as well. So we're actually in the process of of rebuilding his initial sale to the Library of Congress.
0: How, how do you rebuild
2: <laughs> Thank- that kind of collection? Sure. Thankfully, we still have a few catalogs uh, of the collection that was sold to the Library of Congress. So we have the handwritten catalog saying which particular books came to the library. And so through that, we're rebuilding the, the collection.
0: Then Eric Fraser showed us a book written by Copernicus, in 1543
2: this is one of the first times and one of the more significant first times that the uh, sun is actually portrayed in the center of our of our system of our sol- uh, solar system and so we have actually the diagram we're opened up to the diagram right here now this was this is in contrary to what the catholic church was teaching at the time and so it was it was um, heretical. It was an arguably difficult book to publish. And so uh, Copernicus, actually, it's arguable as to whether he, he had it published a, a few days before or a few days after he died. He made sure he wasn't That's going why to I be love around. It. <laughs> yeah, for the consequences that fell. <laughs> he left that to Galileo, who eventually spent yes. a few of his years in prison and defending Copernicus's theories. <laughs>
0: Speaking of Galileo, he wrote Starry Messenger in 1610, and the edition we were shown contains what Dr. Hayden, Eric Fraser, and many others believe are the very visible fingerprints of Galileo.
2: This happens to be a a piece by Galileo right here. This is what's called Sideris Nuncius. This is 1610. This is Galileo looking at the moon for the first time through a telescope, and he actually He actually uh, draws diagrams, um, and it's this very special piece.
1: And there is another legend. Do you see faint fingerprints here? Eric can tell you that (laughs) we are not sure, sure, um, but there is speculation that these are the fingerprints of Galileo. Get out of here. Yes. (laughs) There they are. Now, we'd We'd like like to believe believe that. And there's reason to believe it, Eric. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mainly because of where the type of... um, print that it is, of the copy, sure. that so could have pi- picked it up. This
2: is actually very true. So this is actually, uh, this came to us in this binding. This binding is what's called a, a printer's binding. And essentially before the year 1800, books would come, uh, if I may, books would come in this format. You would essentially buy the text block, but you wouldn't necessarily buy the covers to the book. Oh. And so what, what happens is you take that text block to a binder, and the binder would put whatever type of cover you could afford or want for that book. And so in order to keep the pages and the text block clean, they would, uh, printers would often put on these printer's papers. And so this is actually printer's papers. It never actually made it to the, to the binder. And that's why you also see this ragged edge. This is what's called a deckled edge. And the deckled edge is indicative of a paper that hasn't yet been cut down to fit a particular binding. Like this binders. one. That's exactly right. right. And
1: with the gold.
2: Yeah, you know this has happens to have a gilt edge right. uh, as well.
1: So the thought is that he was seeing early uh, printings of the book and he picked it up and that might be his finger.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just going to have to have a moment here <laughs> because the idea that we're looking at potentially, maybe, the fingerprints of Galileo yes. is just a little mind- it's mind-blowing. Next up, the very colorful Apocalypse of St. John.
2: This book was actually partially published, partially written, uh, in, and partially created in 1465.
1: With the colors jumping out of you. Five. 1465 it's just as vivid as it looks. Yeah
2: sure and so yeah. this this book is um it's essentially created in 1465 because it's it's what's called a samlband and it's the apocalypse of saint john is what we call this book we call it that because the most significant part of the book is at the very end and it's it's actually a block book a block book was more of a pressing or a stamped book and so What we're looking at right now is a book that is uh, rather a page that is half text and then half illustration. And it was done that way so that it would be this didactic, colorful book and lesson for those who wanted to, to see it, whether they be literate or not. Now, it's true, the colors have held up very, very Very well well. for the last 400 years. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, one of the ways that you can always tell a block book, and if you come across one, well, Give me a call and we can work work it out from there. They're they're very, very valuable, very, very scarce, these books are. And what ends up happening is in order to create a block book, you essentially carve, carve into wood the text and the images. So this is all one. The page, the whole page, is all one carving. Then it's inked and then the page is actually put down onto the onto the carving, mm-hmm. and the back is rubbed. And so one of the re- one of the ways you can always tell a block book is that the, the the opposite side of the illustration is always blank because they had to rub this. and in in doing so, if you tried to turn it over and do the same on the back, you'd actually ruin what you've just created. and so so this is a very, very special book.
0: And finally, Poems on Various Subjects, a book of poems by Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American female poet to ever be published.
2: Phyllis Wheatley, actually Phyllis um, um, was named after the ship that actually brought her from Africa to Boston, I'm sorry to say. Um, She was sold to the Wheatley family and she was educated within the family, showed great aptitude. And as soon as they saw this, they actually... Um, um, took her off of duties within the house, so to speak, and uh, had her on full-time education. Um, she tried to publish her her uh, book of poems here in America, but uh, being a, unfortunately being a slave, uh, there wasn't a printer in America that was going to print her her work. Um, so she was actually so she went with the Wheatley's son to. London or actually England took a small tour around England um, actually met with a benefactor and was able to publish in London now she wasn't able to publish in London automatically or immediately Um, the uh, Bell the publisher also asked for proof that she had written these pieces and And so she had to go through uh, some interviews and quite a bit of um, trials and tribulations, so to speak, in order to even be published in London.
0: Thank you so much for listening to K-Pop. And remember, you can watch the video of this on Facebook. And tune in next week when we get back into serious policy. This time we're talking about the debt ceiling and we're going to do it in plain English.
2: Up, You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington
1: Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.